Welcome everyone, my name is Adam Williams and you're listening to the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. Helping me host tonight's show is a lady who gives the show some much needed credibility and a touch of class. It's Dr. Lucy Burke. Lucy, how are you? I am very well. Thank you for associating me with class and credibility, neither of which I think I really have, but... <laughs> you do, in buckets. I'll Absolute take it. Buckets. Thank you. Hey, what a, what, um, a week we've had, Lucy, eh, politically? Yeah, and, and well, it's, it, for me, it's been it's been all of that, and universities going back as well. So it's been it's been a mixture of kind of COVID related anxiety plus political, yeah, political upset. Yeah. And for those that are not in Manchester, or I don't know what's going on here. We've we've had a number of things going on in Manchester, and that is our exalted leader of the council has decided to step down after twenty five years. So there's a hell of a lot going on there. Um, and also, for people that should know by now, we're associated with Greater Manchester Labour for a Green New Deal. And just recently, our Green New Deal motion has been cast aside with a wave of a hand from a conference. So it's all kicking off there as well. So, yeah, a lot going on. A lot going on. Loads of interest and um, wearing us all out, isn't it, Lucy? Yeah, it is. I also did a really interesting thing this week, just as an aside, which was... Um spoke at an event with a, a somebody who used to be in river dance so there you go well not river with him dance. but he, he was his his a film about him was featured because he's got early onset dementia so yeah it was it's been a it's been a busy week wow that is interesting yeah right by rights i shouldn't like tonight's guest for four real and substantive reasons number one he's younger than me two he's better educated than me in my favorite subject critical theory three he's better looking than me and last but not least, he's got better tattoos than me. However, despite all this, I'm extremely excited to introduce it to our audience, someone who I've been following for a while and who I believe is destined for great things. He teaches politics at Manchester University. He writes about a whole array of topics, including political theory, political economics and climate change, with a special focus on land struggles. He is a Marxist, a critical theorist, and his name is Kai Heron. Kai, one welcome to the show, mate. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. That was quite a scary introduction. <laughs> and all true. Didn't know where you were going for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to see you, mate. Um, okay, so Kai, you've written on a, an array of articles and papers, um, probably more than we can go into tonight. But for those that don't know about you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about your background, but also about the time or like the realisation when you knew just how serious climate breakdown was and why you decided to dedicate a large part of your work to it? Yeah, of course. Um, really nice question. So it's kind of fortuitous. Today is the 10 year anniversary of the Occupy movement, right? And I'm one of uh, that generation of organizers and that came out of that. So that was a formative moment for me. Um, I was coming out of university, my undergrad, I was involved in the Occupy movement, but also involved in various like animal rights movements in Bristol. So I was kind of an, an early days awareness of environmentalism. Then there's a middle period where I worked loads of little jobs I didn't enjoy and I went back to university and I got very interested in the anti-fracking movement. I was based in Brighton, so I was involved in the anti-fracking movement in Brighton, sort of associated with the Balkan anti-fracking movement as well. Uh, and from there, I did my PhD on anti-pipeline protests, but not in the UK, instead in the US. Um, so I was looking at anti-pipeline struggles uh, in upstate New York and in Pennsylvania. And it was during that time while staying with, I think people have seen things like the Gasland documentary, they'll know about this, but I stayed in Dimmock, Pennsylvania, which is a town where you turn your tap on, you put a match by it, and because of methane leakages, your tap wow, goes yeah. up on fire, right? Yeah, it was a brilliant documentary. I remember watching that, it blew me away. It's an amazing documentary and people should watch it, right? So that was, yeah. I studied those movements, the people who were affected by that, and became very, very interested in the unequal way that the climate crisis was impacting people on the ground, transforming our landscapes by dragging pipelines through communities that, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And then solidarity actions between indigenous communities like Standing Rock and these kinds of what were normally thought of as like white trash communities in Pennsylvania, right? And seeing those alliances being formed is what really got me interested. Um, so that that's kind of my background and where I came from. Your most recent work has been around sort of land rights and, and sort of studies on agriculture and stuff like that. Your most recent article that has been published, it highlights a study done at the Global Sustainability Institute which suggests that the UK would be one of only a handful of nations to survive ecological collapse if it was to implement really draconian island fortress measures 
Um, but you've highlighted that on the important subject of self-reliance, there would have to be some sweeping land reforms for this to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about this? So this is a weird study, right? Because it, it's a very like um, positivist poli-sci study that takes a few variables and goes on the basis of those variables. The UK looks pretty good, right? It looks like we have 71% of our land is used for agricultural purposes. It looks like we could reorient that to survive and become some kind of you know self-reliant on food. We're an island nation. So the article argues that that means we won't be... Uh, hit by waves of climate refugees, so they don't call them that. They say something like disruptive forces, but it's, it's quite clear what they mean. Um, so on the basis of that, wow. yeah. So on the basis of that, they go, you know, the UK is a good place to be. The UK, New Zealand, any island nation, that's where you want to be. The article, I tried to kind of drill into that figure around 71% of our land being used for agriculture, because it's something crazy, like of that, I think it's 15% of that land is used to produce food for human consumption and the rest is used to produce like animal feed right that animal feed feed only provides a small amount of our caloric intake when it's you know consumed by the chickens the pigs and the cows that we eat and a large portion of our portion of our food and it's always been the case in the uk doesn't come from the uk it comes from overseas so we're only 60 percent or around there the figure varies um you know, we can produce 60% of our own food and the rest of that comes from overseas. Mostly, most of our fruit and vegetables comes from overseas. Only 15% of our fruit and veg are grown in the UK. So once you start thinking about that, then you need to change the way the land is used, right? So it can't just be producing animal feed. So then you need to think, who owns that land and how do we change how that land is used? And then you run into, um, you know, people write about neo-feudalism. It's a thing at the moment. It's an interesting theory. But if you're from the UK, you'll be you'll think, you know, feudalism never really ended since 1066. The same people have owned a large portion of the land. They have an inordinate amount of wealth and power and decide how the land will be used. They rake in agricultural subsidies because they own this land and rent it out to tenants. So there's all of these power dynamics that I wanted to get at in that piece and say it's entirely possible with 71% of our land, you know, available to feed us as an, as an island, if that were a goal. And I don't want a yeah. fortress Europe, fortress UK, but I think we do need to produce more food more locally. So it's entirely possible to do that. But if we want to do it, we'll have to go after landowners, right? We'll have to finally have some kind of real meaningful land reform in the UK. The Corbyn era Labour Party really put this on the agenda. They had the policy piece about taking on land reform in a kind of quite modest way. And that's yeah, a great just piece up. It's fantastic. Everyone should yeah, read it. it right? is, yeah. And then that's just been buried. Um, so I kind of looked at the Angular Ruskin University piece and was like, this is an ideal time to bring this back alongside people like Guy Shrubsole and Nick Hayes, who have done some amazing work on land struggles in the UK. And just try and foreground that again. And in the piece, it also highlights that 17% of land is owned by corporations, hedge funds and speculative investors. Um, are they the ones that we should be sort of taking land back from first? Is it, is it more realistic to go for the corporations than the land, landowners? Where, where should we initially put our energies I really want to say why choose <laughs> like you know i think so like there is there is a danger with uh, the way the piece is framed admittedly as well like it's it's quite good to go after <laughs> it's quite fun and easy to go after monarchs and landlords right because even a kind of capitalist way of using the land will see that as an unproductive quote-unquote use of the land right you're just renting it you're just extracting profit and so it seems like why not give it to companies head, not hedge funds but companies that will use it in a productive way um, I do think we need to challenge that that push to kind of um, consolidate the land into these large businesses, agribusinesses, or um, uh, you know, carbon drawdown businesses is becoming increasingly prevalent. I do th so we do need to tackle that, but I also think it doesn't hurt to dredge up the history of unequal ownership through uh, aristocracy, in part because once you go down the route of targeting aristocracy, you have to start talking about differential racializations of the countryside and the city. So yeah. it pulls in really important histories of how the countryside has been racialized, right? And to exclude broad swathes of the people from the country. Yeah, and I suppose interestingly enough as well, the, the, not so much today, maybe for reasons of comfort or whatever, or, or sort of a, a more wealthier quote unquote working class, 
But these ideas of taking land back from aristocracy were very much prevalent um, on, in the masses for centuries, weren't they? It's, it's only really recently in our history where these conversations aren't even really talked about. Exactly, yeah. And it's a huge thing. We've forgotten our history of peasant rebellions, for example, right? Right up into the, in the 11th century, moving forward, we've had some of the largest peasant rebellions in Europe that were yeah. taking a stand against this. Um, I think bringing that back is is really important. There's an untapped legacy there. And there's also a legacy to be, you know, a republic, to abolish the monarchy, to take the monarchy's lands back into common ownership. I think we could tap back into that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, anyway. <laughs> so your article also highlights the myth versus reality of how British industrialization was driven forward, um, which I found really interesting. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? History you'll be given if you take any kind of history or geography course about the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution is that technological advances in the way that we farm the land allowed us to move people off the land from the drudgery of land work and agricultural labor, freeing them up so they could move into the city and pursue a better life in the city. Right? That's a kind of very sanitized version. You might get a slightly less sanitized version. It talks about the enclosures, like a kind of a violent process of taking peasants off of their land to force them into the city. But largely, both of those stories share something in common, which is the idea that our agricultural revolution, the boost in productivity that allowed the kind of ignition switch of capital to start in the UK, was an internal affair, right? The idea that it was a change in social relations within the UK that led to this. So there's, there are Marxists who make this argument as well. The most famous one is Brenner, right? The Brenner debate about where capitalism began. I, in that article, pick up from a different school, the Patniks, Utzer and Prabhat Patnik, who kind of reassessed the data on how the agricultural revolution occurred in the UK. And they argue that a large portion of our food that made that switch possible from being an agrarian society to an urban society didn't come from the UK. Our food was already coming from colonies. So it was coming in large quantities from Ireland, providing a large portion of our food. We should never forget that Northern Ireland is a colony, right? Still. So there's that. And then a large portion of our food is coming, was coming from India. And it was those imports, so it was an external affair, that allowed the agrarian revolution to begin, industrialization to begin. So capitalism's always been global. In the UK, England has always been at the heart of that kind of industrialization process through the exploitation of empire and colony. What, what do you think the reasons are for, for this sort of sanitized version of history? Do you think it's like almost a sinister take or do you think it's more of a simplistic sort of queen and country type take? Because I'm often not so much jump straight into the sinister, oh, it's, it's, it's a capitalist propaganda to keep people uneducated. I think sometimes when things are so complex and so nuanced, we just at the end of it get some sort of version that you can feed to, to kids. Um, and I'm just wondering where, where you may fit on regards to the history that we, that we are taught. Yeah, I love that. It's a really difficult question to answer. I was thinking about this, going to go anecdotally yesterday, because I decided to take some time off before the teaching semester starts. And I know it's going to be a nightmare. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to the Lake District, right? And like, <laughs> so we go to the Lake District. And I was just thinking about the uh, big hoo-ha around the National Trust report that found that country homes and our land was partly, you know, it's all dripping in the legacies and histories of, of slavery and colonialism and empire. And the National Trust kind of responded very quickly to backlash about it being, you know, a woke agenda, being part of the council culture, all of that, to kind of stamp down on this history. And I, I think part of that is, yes, it's nationalistic and it's give us our white notion of what the UK is. But another part of that is also this idea and I'm kind of, I get this of like, why can't we just have beautiful things? <laughs> like, why can't the countryside just be beautiful, right? Why can't that house just be a nice house that I can go around with my family and not think about the fact that it came from slavery? And I think like, yeah, okay, fine. I think there is something to that. And that goes into the way we're taught history. Like, here's a very nice sanitized version of history that can talk about us being the victors, about our successes what that doesn't do is, you know, erases, I would say, the role of struggle in society and the role of a class struggle in society. Like, we can have beautiful things, but we have to fight to get them together against racism, against colonialism, 
Otherwise, yeah, you're kind of sticking your head in the sand to, to you know, get a sanitized version of our past. And only, you know, white people, frankly, can do that and certain classes can do that. Yeah, I think it is, you know, I do believe it is an interesting question in regards to how we, we've got here and why the history has been, is as it is. But as you've kind of alluded to there, the important part is to actually go back and say, really, regardless of the history that we're taught, this is the real history. This is the history we need to know. And these are the reasons why. And then work out where we go from there. I suppose that's the main part, isn't it? I'm just thinking about Walter Benjamin and, and his point about every, every, you know, every kind of monument civilization being a kind of monument to barbarism. And it, that's always been the case. And, and it's partly, as kind of Benjamin talks about, in that work that it's about who gets to write the history you know so 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 that that's that's part of it and and why that history is written in in particular ways and of course like every you you know you 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 catch a train who built the railways yeah Um, exactly. you you know it's who, who who built the who built the cathedrals so, so there is always that kind of relationship between sort of exploitation and, um, you know, the creation of things that we then describe as as, as beautiful, <laughs> you know, without, with, with, you know, placing that whole history under erasure. There's that amazing poem by Brecht as well, right, about this, like the monuments that we have in society, who built them, what does history look like from their perspective, which tries to do the same thing as that Benjamin uh, point, which is, you know, History, it's not just history is told by the victors. I think that's too simplistic. But history is a site of contestation and struggle. Uh, and we need to think of it as such instead of being a neutral fact. Even, you know, and even like the real history, we need to dig out real history and tell it as it really is. I would even question that, right? We need to tell our history would be the way I would do that. And it's a fight to get our history out there to people. You know, from your perspective then, Kai, what needs to happen for the UK to have food sovereignty? What, what are the steps that need to take place? The, the big important steps? Um, win a Green New Deal, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. But yeah, so within a Green New Deal, there's obviously an agricultural part. Um, I want to sort of maybe end the show with, with a quote in one of, one of your other articles, which I think is really sort of uh, poignant in regards to Green New Deal. But to break it down, that that section of the Green New Deal, what would you advise, or what would you what would you say would be the big steps to be to, for UK food sovereignty? So a couple of steps. One. I mean, there's the informing people, this is too easy, but the, let's go with the basic one. Inform yourselves of where your food comes from. I still think people are very, very uncertain about this. So, you know, it says grown in Britain or made in Britain or whatever, but actually look at the full supply chain when that happens. So if your chicken is produced in the UK, its feed is probably from a deforested part of the Brazilian rainforest, right? Which has probably happened through the displacement of indigenous people. So like, we need to do that kind of educative work. I think that's important. I think dramatically reimagining where we this gets big very quickly but the, and then we can work backwards we need to dramatically reimagine where we live how we live how we work where our food comes from our proximity to our food you know if possible kind of producing some of your own food is a really good lesson in learning how this happens and how to do that and the work that's involved in that and then reconnecting people to the landscape to help that happen is another thing so i think there's this move, the right to roam movement at the moment, right? Like it's not enough, but reconnecting people to the land so they can understand how the land is owned and who it's land owned by would be a good first step. And then more concretely to attain food sovereignty itself, the elimination of agribusiness is an essential thing, right? We, we have monocultural farming systems that rely on big industry, lots of fossil fuel in, um inputs so fertilizer pesticides that needs to be switched out for what gets called regenerative agriculture or sometimes gets called agroecology which is a kind of farming system that more closely um, approximates a kind of quote-unquote natural ecosystem a more complex more biodiverse ecosystem and there's plenty of evidence that that kind of farming can sustain and can produce a lot of food and can compete in the right context and done properly with agribusiness agribusiness's main advantage over it at the moment is that it makes more money right it's it's less labor intensive so you don't have outputs of wage costs so you can keep more of the profits and you have to buy all those inputs if you're a farmer right so there's a profit to be made there for somebody else 
So yeah, a shift towards agroecology or regenerative agriculture and probably a shift towards a kind of more variegated distribution of how we inhabit the landscape so that we are closer to our food, so that the city doesn't draw masses of resources in from the countryside. But that's probably a whole other conversation. We would be eating, like, I, I suppose, different things as well. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I think it's interesting just to think across kind of, I suppose, my my childhood through to my adulthood like the, the 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 transformation in the ways in which we eat and what we eat yeah in comparison so, for instance to my grandparents and what they ate which yeah. they sort of they i mean yeah, they they lived in a council house and they had a bit of land a bit, bit of a garden and they grew their food right and that was mm-hmm. that was probably quite an ordinary thing to do but we've got a big culture change to take on board haven't we because everybody wants blueberries at all times or do you know you, I mean that sort of stuff really it's as simple as that isn't it there are those so I mean this is where I get on my vegan high horse I've been vegan for 13 years um I'm not the kind of vegan that I've got in trouble with other vegans for this but I'm not the kind of vegan that doesn't think there's a place for livestock in regenerative agricultural systems or a place for pastoralism or a place for eating meat but I do think a dramatic reduction in meat consumption is one of the f- very very first steps right I started by saying a large portion of the land, 71% of our land is used for agriculture, only 15% for human consumption. The rest is for animal feed, right? That's not sustainable. So those kinds of shifts are really easy shifts, I think. I say that smugly from my position as a vegan, but it can be done. That's it. I mean, they're easy shifts from a logical environmental persuasion, but we're such complex beings, humans, and we're so easily tricked um, in regards to when, when there's a profit to be made. So, you know, like you say, in a logical way, you know, it's, it seems a very easy shift, um, but it, it doesn't seem to be that way culturally. But it's, it's not just, it's not just meat though, is it? I mean, it's, it's, I, I can remember being in, in Berlin and um, people in East Berlin, you know, they would get oranges sort of around Christmas from Cuba and they would be green oranges and it's kind of, you know, and, and people would be really like pleased about these green oranges. But of course, if you, if you're, you know, if you're used to having oranges all the way around through the year or you're used to having something, that's another quite fundamental shift beyond just the issue of meat on or, or, or not meat. Yeah. So this gets, gets onto the topics of like, um, I don't really want to go into the critical theory, political theory side of my work, but it gets into the issue of desire, which I think of very seriously as a political category. Some of my work has been in psychoanalysis, right? There's this idea of instant gratification and enjoyment that has been uh, produced in us to be, you know, get instant gratification of the thing you want, like that orange, as you say, the moment you get it and the, the moment you want it. And the task, I think, for a progressive movement that wants to reorient how we eat is to make it appealing and desirable and exciting to live in a different way and it sounds boring to say to eat in seasonal rotations but it's actually not that boring right like eating with the seasons is a really nice thing it's worth trying to do it to understand what it would be like it's not as bad as you think english food we've got i think people think english food is awful and it kind of is but it doesn't need to be we have hazelnuts blackberries blueberries beetroots you know grains we do have meat yeah it's just about shifting our perspective culturally as you say no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say we've got kale, which you know I I try so hard to like. <laughs> yeah, Have you roast desperately. It? My, my my big tip is roast it light light spray of oil and some salt, and then roast it and have it like a kale chip on something. I promise you, it's actually not I, like that. so. You sort of pretend it's a burnt crispy thing. Yeah, I could I can live with that <laughs> the kale thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You don't have to eat everything. It's fun. <laughs> Yeah, Kai's uh, up and coming cookbook, one hundred percent hipster. Thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So, Kai, you've you've touched on some of your other work with psychoanalysis and whatnot, and also you've touched on the Green New Deal. So, I'm wondering if we could perhaps move on to that. Um, one of your articles, which was written a couple of years ago now, um, you say that. Um, You've written that though many in the capitalist class declare that the Green New Deal is nothing more than communism in disguise. Interestingly, you say that when it comes to environmentalism and class struggle, the Green New Deal might be the least of their worries. Um, Why did you say that? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because, right, the Green New Deal is a space of contestation, right? So people like Theoria Frankos have pointed this out. The term 
There isn't actually a Green New Deal legislation yet that we can point to and start critiquing. The Green New Deal is a space, you know, some attempts, right? But it's a space where we can fight over what should be contained in a Green New Deal and push it forward so we can get the most radical version we can hopefully get, right? I'm right on board with that. I wrote that piece a while ago now, but at a point when I was worried, and I am still worried, that some version of a Green New Deal can be used to kind of save capitalism from itself. Yes. So, right? So we can have a Green New Deal that uh, plugs some of the worst polluted industries, you know, puts tampers on those, is a new what gets called a social compromise between the working class and the capitalist class that enables a kind of business as usual to kind of stumble on for a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, most radical ideas get appropriated <laughs> and get watered down. And I'm very, very concerned that something like that would happen with, with a Green New Deal. Yeah. And, you, and in the article, you do highlight the fact that the New Deal uh, was often said as saving capitalism. Um, but also you do say that you can hold two thoughts at the same time. So you can accept um, that the Green New Deal may in some way save capitalism, but it is still a radical idea that, that can be pursued in its own on its own terms. And I'm assuming what you mean is you've got to sort of pinpoint those the radicalism and the revolutionary aspects of the Green New Deal and they're the ones that you've got to push forward forever until until the next phase happens. Is that what you're trying to exactly. say? Exactly. So there's some kind of, it's a strategic question. It's a political question. It's what demands yeah. can we make that look almost modest, right? That look like they won't disrupt the system too much. But when you really push for them, it makes you have to call into question everything about that structure, right? That's that's kind of the demands in the Green New Deal that I think we need to be thinking about. Um I think things like, it seems obvious in the US, but the US case, I think something like public health care is one of those and linking that to the Green New Deal and understanding how. I think in the UK, something like land reform starts to do that in the right way, done the right way. But yeah, it's about, that's a question to be had as groups, as movements, thinking about what parts of this Green New Deal can we push at that drives a kind of red and green wedge in right into the system that changes how everyone views this question and realizes that more radical change is needed to solve it than just kind of modest Green New, you know, Green New Deal reformism. But you do, um, you, in a lot of the work, there's a kind of struggle, I, I think, that I've picked up in around a kind of utopian impulse or a kind of, you talk, you talk about kind of utopian thinkers, I think, in one piece, and, and you talk about a kind of theological uh, fra framing in, in, in another. That's That sort of sense of imagining something radically different. You seem to... You seem to often kind of talk about the tensions between that and 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 actually how you begin to actually engage with people, engage with working class people, engage with people who aren't the people who are writing these utopian uh, sort of you know books for you know for radical publishers, and how you actually imagine a sort of transition or change yes, yes. or transformation. So I'd be really interested in you sort of saying a bit more about that because we've we've talked to a few people. I mean, we talked to um, Max Isle and um, obviously his People's New Green New Deal is, is I suppose, uto utopian thinking in some ways. And he said, oh, well, he kind of said, didn't he, adds um, transition is for other people to work out, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, social democracy for Marx is like, you know, a big joke, really. You know, the the, the, the Green New Deal, the, the bit in the middle to get to socialism or cap communism is not really his thing. He's very critical of that that part of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose, what's your take on that? Yeah, that right? so I suppose it's like, what, how, do, how do we, yeah, how, how do we move from, from one place to another and to achieve the kinds of things that, you, you know, you're very powerfully writing about, you know, is needing to do? Yeah, I love this question. I also think Max is selling himself short, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Oh, brilliant, um, yeah. All right, so, uh, yeah, so this problem is something that I write about in an article uh, called Capitalist Catastrophism for Raw Magazine that I'll be picking up on for another forthcoming piece and hopefully taking forward from there. This comes from a observation that, sorry, I'm going to have to go back quite a bit. I don't know how familiar people are with Mark Fisher's work, but that's my way into this, so I'm going to start there. All of for a treat. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark Fisher has a text called Capitalist Realism 
which takes Frederick Jameson and Slavoj Žižek's idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism as a kind of beginning point to say that left movements are totally constrained by capitalism and we are stuck in this thing that he calls capitalist realism, which is just the idea that we cannot imagine alternatives to capitalism, right? And this predicament, I really think, put its finger on the kind of from 2001 to like, you can name it 2015, 2016, depends when you want to periodize this, but it captured like 10 years longer than that of thinking on the left, right? That's kind of my opening gambit. Then I think there has been a shift recently to being able to imagine alternative futures. I don't think it's the case anymore that it's easier to imagine the world than the end of capitalism. And I don't think that because I can point to projects like the Green New Deal I can point to um, the Red Deal in the US. We can point to people like Max's work, Theoria Frankos's work. There are all of the small farm futures. There are all of these different imaginings of what a post-capitalist society could be and would look like. But then we're left with the predicament that you're raising, Lucy, right? Which is like, here are our utopian images. We know how to get to the, we have an idea. We want eco-socialism. We want degrowth, another one of these utopian aspirations. We have all of these but we don't have that transitional moment. And so in that capitalist catastrophism piece, I kind of left it there and was like, this is a problem for our movements because we are now, we could, we've stretched our utopian muscles again. We can project into the future. We can imagine alternatives and this is an amazing accomplishment and we should celebrate that. Now we're stuck with the problem of transition, right? And there are some parts of the left that reject the notion of transition altogether. So there's communization theory in the Marxist tradition. I'm not persuaded by that. I think we need a theory of transition. I'm also with Max. I'm not persuaded by social democracy. I'm just not persuaded by this, this method of so democratic socialism would be the other way. I'm not really that persuaded by that. Where I think Max's work is right and where I'm thinking more and more and trying to work on is pointing to movements and histories where struggles did happen that we can pull back and speak about and use as lessons, right? Either ongoing today or in the past. Max has written about the landless workers movement in Brazil. He's spoken about La Via Campesina. He's spoken previously about Cuba, for example, and uses those as inspiration for agroecology, much like I would. Um, I think pointed it's not up to the task. And I know that, you know, there are these big utopian visions of where we want to get to. And then I'm like, you should look at agricultural experiments in Cuba. And like this, there's a gap here. But I do think we need to start doing that work of standing in solidarity with actions like that, that are doing something and theorizing and thinking politically out of those spaces. It's modest, but like that's kind of where we're at. After decades of destruction of our movements, we're at this point where we need to find these places again and start theorizing and thinking from them. But, but I wonder in terms of, um, you know, one of the things that came across really clearly in the piece that you write uh, you know, there's 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 much I, I can't remember. It's about social. It, it revolves around the binary socialism or extinction, and you, you're very um, hard on sort of theological framings, right? And and yet, when I think about one of the most successful movements, like the EZLN and the Zapatista communities, of course, that's all underpinned by kind of millenarian. You know the the return of um, uh, you know Zapata, a kind of theological, af- effective, emotional kind of impulse, and I wonder if one of the things that we lack sometimes on on the left is a is a recognition of the importance of kind of not not the irrational as such, but something around a, a, an emotional a, a, a investment that goes beyond a, a kind of secular rationality you know, and which kind of really pulls people in and, and, and whether it's it's how we frame um, our project in those terms in order to really um, engage people. That, that's one of the things that we've, we've been missing. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a literature that argues that there's a, I think it's right, there's a millenarian strain in the socialist tradition, right? So when communism first hits the shores of the US, they're, they're consciously millenarian in the way they think, and right? Because they're talking to, people who are steeped in Christianity and that kind of would draw people in, like you say, the framing works. Uh, Even in, you know, the attainment of communism as a final ideal is kind of a secular theological pattern of thought. I think that's true. I'm not convinced by that, but only because I think there's another way of doing it, which is to say, 
I go down the route of like desire and enjoyment, uh, this kind of psychoanalytic perspective, and say, I think we need a, a, a proposal, an agenda, a message that is uh, libidinally appealing, to use that language, that is exciting for people, and that runs something like, the things that you still think you enjoy about capitalism are an impoverished form of what you could enjoy if you were living under something like a socialist or communist society. And then making the case persuasively that, you know, your choice of uh, like 20 fizzy drinks when you go to the supermarket is no choice at all, right? It's terrible. You can have a much better version of whatever it is. Um, those kinds of messages for me, it might not convince you, especially I'm getting strong Benjamin tones, strong theological <laughs> tones. And I, I just, I don't think... We need to go there. I don't think there's anything essential about theological perspectives, although it's also worth mentioning, and I have just read, sorry to go on a tangent, Cedric Robinson has a very good book called uh, Anthropology of Marxism, where he goes through previous communist and socialist histories to argue that Marx obviously isn't the first socialist and communist, and there are other histories of communist thought and socialist thought, including in the Middle, the middle Ages, through stuff like the kind of heretical Christian movements and the Jesuits, right? I think that's right. And I don't want to say that, you know, you can't use theological orientations to make claims towards like liberation Marxism, right? That's a, it's a thing. But I would just want to focus more on like the everyday focus of how do we enjoy in the system? How do we enjoy uh, capitalism still, even though we hate it, right? That, that definitely happens. And how do we push our desire towards something different in a transitional way I, I don't think that's going to satisfy you Lucy but that's that's kind of why I stand no no it's not it's not that and I'm not, I'm not kind of I'm, I'm not sort of cheerleading for theological approaches either it's just it's just it was I was picking it up in in your work and I was thinking particularly about the Zapatistas and and, and about the fact you know that they're still around 1994 was the uprising and they're they're, they're, they're still here and you know partly that was you know the kind of uh, you know the very powerful kind of rhetoric of sort of subcomandante marcos and 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 all of that but there was something effective there something emotional so um which which wasn't quite the same i suppose as 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 desire in the way that i i understand you you, you mean but yeah no. i mean I, I i get that as well I really like it because that pushes. Is you know when someone reads your work and they see something you haven't seen, and now I'm gonna have to go away and think about this. <laughs> in my own time. But I would also I would also point to like yes, that's true. But there's also the, like the indigenous knowledges and traditions that they're drawing on, right? Like the the milpa agricultural system that enables them to be self more or less self sufficient agroecologically. Um, those kinds of more material conditions, and then the fact that like yeah, nobody is subcolando Marcos that whole yeah, thing, yeah. right? <laughs> there's something really interesting in those. Um, there's something going on in the bin or there that I would want to think about. But yes, I need, I'm going to go back and think very carefully about my position on, on theology and millenarianism in the Marxist tradition. It's a really fun thing to think about. Yeah, and I suppose it's, it's characters like, again, like Che Guevara, you know, we're still pining. It's almost as if we're pining for that sort of revolutionary once again, you know, all these decades later. Um, but what I was going, to, was going to say is the biggest problem I see in regards to the transition part is I think that we need to start developing a climate consciousness. But for me, it has to have be a part of this class consciousness that, that has really fallen away from what I see as the biggest, still the biggest driver in society and that would, uh, history changer in society, which would be the working class. Now, as a Marxist, Kai, um, what's your thoughts on class consciousness? How do we... How do we elevate class consciousness that seems to be ebbing away rapidly, um, but also develop a climate consciousness to go along with it? Because if the climate crisis was 100 years ago, I think it might have been easier to solve because class consciousness was so strong within the working classes that it just would have been an, an extra evolution of that consciousness. But now we're almost having to... to re-energize the working class to to recapture that class consciousness which is hard enough which took centuries to develop but then also add a an extra layer which is climate consciousness to it so where's your thoughts on that huge question i love it uh, <laughs> let me think about let me go through a few things the first one is okay so the first step and i mean this in the nicest way is i'm always curious about 
who we mean when we say class and class consciousness. So if we go back a hundred years and say there was a class consciousness, that would have been before the civil rights movement, right? And it wouldn't have meant black people and indigenous people. It would have probably meant it was white unionized workers predominantly, yeah, yeah. right? So it's the first step. And like, it's, it's not a, a bar, but it's just a fact that we need to think about. And so this calls on us to reorient what we mean when we say working class. I think that's really important. Then the other step, the other reorientation I would make, usually when we talk about class politics, we think that we mean kind of economics. We mean like our working conditions, our mo- where we live, where we work, how we reproduce ourselves. And we put those things on one side. So how does the working class reproduce itself as a class? How do we empower it to do that? That's the kind of questioning people talk about, right? And then they put the environment on the other side of this. And the environment would be global warming, it, or it would be oil and gas, stopping oil and gas extraction, or whatever it may be, right? It might be the Green New Deal. I'm really persuaded by people um, like Jason Moore, who argue that these two things aren't separate, right? Any capitalism, his ar- argument is, is already an ecological regime. It's already reorientating ecology through the way we reproduce ourselves within that society. So in an odd way, this, this divide doesn't hold anymore. Where we go to work and how we work is an ecological question from the very beginning. And I think making that connection is really key, right? So then we've got two things. One, how we reproduce ourselves as a class, and we need to question what we mean by that, um, is inherently an ecological question. And from there, I think we might be able to start building towards thinking about other ecological things like global warming, global heating, whatever language you want to use. That's the first part. And then the second part is questioning what we mean by working class. And like, yes, absolutely, I'm a Marxist, but I I really like the language of people um, like Lenin or Cabral or Nkrumah, the decolonial movement in particular, that argued that we need a coalition of the oppressed. So, and I find that useful because it displaces this idea of class and it makes us think about peasant movements in the global south, it makes us think of casualized, precarious labor, it makes us think of lumpen proletariat, racialized communities, disabled, trans, whatever it may be, right? I want to pull all of that into a broad agenda. Um, I think that's what it means to think about working class politics today. So once you do that, then you need to connect all of those struggles to environmental issues. And that's a case-by-case basis, largely, but I don't think it's that difficult. The housing stock, for example, in the UK is abysmal, right? Where we live is damp and squalid. It still is, it always has been. Mm-hmm. If, and linking that to the demand for like insulation and affordable, renewable energy, you start to make those connections between working class issues and environmental issues quite smoothly, I think. Yeah, I think I suppose when I said 100 years ago, I, what I meant was it'd be easier, not that it was the perfect time yes. for... For, for class consciousness, it's just that class consciousness, a sense of the power of the, of the, sen- the self and the class that you're part of, makes it would have made it easier, I think, to, to evolve climate consciousness within it. But I completely take your point. So I suppose what I'm saying is a modern working class consciousness that, that envelopes all those things that you've just said. So, but the problem is we've had a break. It's almost like we've... There was a break in class consciousness, yeah? Um, and now we're having to rediscover it all, but also bring in those really important aspects that you've mentioned. But how, it's just how we do that at the same time as also bring in, and I know they're intrinsic to each other, but in people's lives, um, they're still very separate. It seems to be so many plates that we have to spin um, at this current moment, at the wrong time, because we're actually, <laughs> this is the time. So I was just wondering, and, and I, I sort of put this to, to uh, Max, and he was unsure about where the pressure points are in the world that we could look to. But I just think without being able to at least look to somewhere and say, it could be that, or it might be that, or it could be this, or it could be that, we're kind of in this sort of void waiting, and there's nothing worse. There's an old... Um, book dr seuss book um and there's a thing called the waiting room i don't know if you know this i can't actually remember that it's all the places you will go the book's called i think and it's got he has this thing about the waiting room. there's nothing worse than the waiting room nothing really gets done in the waiting room we have to sort of see somewhere and put our energies into something especially because there is this weight of 
the time is ticking. I didn't mean to totally disparage that for that framing because I think it's what you're getting at that's really, really fundamental is that there was a notion of collectivity, right? And that now we're so atomized, we're so, you know, yeah, atomized is the best word for it. We're treated as individuals, yeah. we think as individuals, yeah. we don't act in unison and we, we fight even on the left over, over small things over and over again, right? And how do you build those spaces and sites of collectivity? And it's an amazingly difficult question. And I'm also just going to leave myself like in the wind with no, no solution to this. And I, my only off the hook claim is that on the capitalist catastrophism piece, I say this is a problem of the condition I call capitalist catastrophism, right? That we are in this moment when we need to solve this ecological crisis. It is the moment we need to act and we have this gaping void where we need a transitional theory of unison, right? Of, of unity and how to overcome that. And I think doing what you're doing is just, and just repeatedly pointing to that and saying that that is the question. The question maybe for the left today is the theory of transition. Uh, and then start thinking and organizing around it. That that would be a great start, I think. And I think we're getting there. I think that is where where people are thinking now. Brilliant. I do, I do think as well that theory of transition is a problem any anyway in in kind of critical political thought, isn't it? But you know that that kind of hope that something will you know emerge from from kind of imminent con- conditions that it will you know there'll be something that will suddenly uh, kind of emerge, which I think. I, I don't think he's good enough. But I think there's also a kind of space to um, think about contingency. And I think what we don't often sort of really think enough about are these contingent events which enable people to come together. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, I think of all of the things that we face, the climate emergency is something that will present us with kind of contingent events they might become less contingent as they become more regular but we will we will see things happening and that that may well be um something that enables people to understand collectively what's at stake and that's the place where you could come in essentially with maybe a kind of an account of of why that's happening or what this you know what the solution to that might be yeah so i i'm going to go through a bit of optimism on that and a bit of kind of pessimism on that together so, so on the, on the I, I, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> here, here, here it comes so i i do think you're right there's this concern people think of this big ruptural event that will happen that will somehow bring people together right and i i i worry about and one of the reasons i wrote that piece in um navarra about extinction and, and that not being the worst and it can happen is this tendency to what i call like export the responsibility for the revolution to climate change so it's like we we can't build the forces but when there is a large enough event, that event will be the thing that will ignite and unify and we will come together, right? And I tend to point to uh, over a decade ago now, there was a heat wave in Europe that killed 30,000 people and nothing happened, right? Uh, Not nothing. I've been called out for that before. There were some movements that were organized around that, but very little. Uh, And it's interesting that Kim Stanley Robinson's book, uh, Ministry for the Future, begins with a mass heat death in India, right? Which does start this movement and the contingency means that it could start a movement next time around but we can't rely on those events we can't rely on the german floods that happened this summer the sequoia that are wrapped in fire blankets right now to stop them being burned we can't rely on those events to ignite something to start something but i do think contingency is a really interesting thing to think about and i contingency needs to be thought and theorized about more and how to prepare ourselves for those those moments of possible opportunity. I think the Corbyn moment was almost a contingency thing, right? We didn't, I don't, I don't know, there was work done, but we also kind of didn't work for it. He, we got him and then we unified after the fact around this contingent miracle of, or, you know, of a kind of loophole in the, the electoral system in the Labour Party. And I think we all recognize that that's how that happened. And now we still, we have things like this podcast as a result, right? I think. Um, so we need to yeah, think about yeah. Yeah. So, so when you think about the role of those and how to jump on those and so on that I would point to people like Out of the Woods Collective's um, Disaster Communism piece I think it's available online they try and think quite seriously about how do you respond to what they call the extraordinary disasters of climate change in a way that can build collectivity ordinary disasters being just everyday life under, under capitalism extraordinary disasters being climate breakdown how do we put ourselves in the best possible position to build collectivity out of that? And so when I read their work, I think of things like 
So I live in Manchester, <laughs> uh, just down the road, there are always floods in Hebden Bridge and Todmorden or whatever. You're like, I think about like, how do we get it so that we're ready to go down there and do like flood defense support work or something like that to respond when there is a crisis, to build meaningful collective action and collective power, right? And class yeah. consciousness, ultimately. Right? You know, it's really difficult, I, I think, because the, the, the kind of missing term in all this is the kind of social democratic turn and... And, and its place in that or whether it has or or what we accept or, or how we begin to build, you know, the, 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 and, and address the climate emergency. And at the moment, it's kind of within a capitalist system, isn't it? And yeah, so I, I think I think there are lots of there are there's lots of, I, I suppose, sort of there are lots of issues that we need to work harder on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Kai, we are running out of time, but your sort of niche at the moment is like land reform and land struggle. So I wonder if I could just maybe circle back a little bit because you, one of your pieces that isn't published yet, but you were kind enough to share with us, had some really sort of interesting analysis of the Green New Deal and the differences between a Green New Deal um, perception of cities and where rural communities and land fits within this with this this vision and you've highlighted posters and stuff in the US version of the Green New Deal and you've picked up on this sort of like idea that the cities is really where the Green New Deal takes place and the rural areas are more like a um, subsidise this this sort of um, this dream and so for you from what I can tell which I'd not really thought about before but I thought was really interesting is it's this idea that the cities and, and rural areas are not necessarily separated that's not the best way to live is it and there is some sort of traditional socialist thought on this isn't there you've, you've mentioned William Morris um, and you, you mentioned Marx and Engels as well and a few others could you perhaps give us a vision maybe what was said traditionally about these sorts of things why you think it's important that we sort of envisage a different kind of, of, of world than the, what's being put forward in, in Green New Deal posters, let's say, and how it would potentially work where there's not really a divide between cities and rural areas? Yeah, there's a long history of thinking about the division between the town and country. This gets called a contradiction between the town and country and socialist thought. The idea is that the these two things aren't separate, right? That they're co-constituted, co-produced by flows of resources and goods and labor across these kind of different geographies. Marx makes this claim in volume one, that he calls it the metabolic rift. The metabolic rift is a thing that happens when you take nutrients, resources, goods, food, produce from the countryside, you bring it into the city where it's consumed, and then the waste and nutrients and whatever else needs to go back into the soil to replenish it doesn't return to the soil. So over time, the soil deteriorates. This is kind of like um, 20th century soil biology that he was drawing from and reading, right? And so he's, he makes this claim, and so does Engels in an article about the housing question, that cities, as they're constituted, are fundamentally a capitalist thing. If you look at um, Bloomberg Green, is a, is a you know, new source you can go to for quite interesting green business news. They had a whole thing about how the city will save us from the climate crisis. Because by moving to cities, we can free up land. That land can be used for rewilding. It can be used for whatever else to draw down carbon. We need big, tall skyscrapers like Manchester's gunning for and vertical farms, right? And then that will solve this. That will solve the crisis. What I try and do in that piece, and what what I think is erroneous about that, is that it still subordinates the countryside to the city. It still subordinates food producers in the countryside or in the global south to a mode of living in a, in a city. Or it relies on vertical farms, which are massively water and energy intensive and are just not a sustainable solution to this crisis. So I turn to people like Marx and Engels and people like William Morris, who tried to imagine um, a more patchwork mode of habitation, right? So that we would move out of these big industrialized cities and move into a more dispersed mode of habitation that would include maybe small towns encircled by productive fields or resources, whatever that may be, interconnected by free public transportation, that kind of system can allow um, nutrients to go back to the soil more easily to use Marx's kinds of concerns. It just, uh, just seems like an eminently more sustainable way to live our lives and we can be 
closer to the food that we produce, right? But this is a debate that is roaring right now. There's a really interesting book coming out soon called Half Earth Socialism that makes the exact opposite claim, right? That we need to free up half the earth for rewilding. I would say we don't need that. We need what gets called agroecological matrices. The idea that our food production and conservation can be kind of enmeshed with each other and with where we live in a way that is... Um, leads to, to use a jargony phrase, I, I like to use uh, human and non-human flourishing and thinking about how to produce human and non-human flourishing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's something within the Green New Deal I've heard. It's almost like the narrative that's that brings in the global south and, and talks about the periphery nations that seem to be feeding into the rich west. But it's like a microcosm of that within our own country, whereas like the rural areas are very much taking the place of, say, the global south in that sort of narrative. Was it inspired by that global south narrative that you've kind of make, made a microcosm of and looked at in the UK? Or is it is it a separate way of thinking that's just actually very much similar to the, to the global way of thinking? You're spot on to find the comparison, right? I think they're intricately related. And uh, this came... So another person that's worth reading, doing a lot of name drops, I'm sorry, but... Um, Neil Brenner has articles about the hinterland and the operationalization of the hinterland that are very important to my work on this. And his argument is that hinterlands aren't, um, they can be internal to a nation state and they can be external to a nation state. And it leads to something that Max might have discussed, uneven ecological exchange, right? Which is when you take goods and resources from one space to advantage another group of people at the expense of where those resources have come from. I think the argument is that that happens both between the global north and the global south, but that it also happens between cores and peripheries. And cores and peripheries can be internal to a nation. So I found this when I was doing my anti-fracking work, and this is why this is so important to me. The rural communities I was speaking to were, for all intents and purposes, peripheries to the city. Oil and gas extraction happened in these landscapes. Yeah. Agricultural production happened in these landscapes. Resources were extracted from these landscapes. They didn't see the benefits, the material benefits. It all whipped into New York in most of these cases, New York City or Philadelphia, right? And so it is a microcosm version of a core and periphery relation. That's how I tend to think about it. Yeah, no, it was actually fascinating to sort of see it in those terms. But I think there's, there's, definitely, um, there's definitely something to that. But again, I haven't heard that within Green New Deal discussions. So I will certainly add that to my t thinking and, and discussions going forward. So, yeah, I've, I really thought that was quite profound. Well, I'd like to um, to end on, on a quote in one of your pieces, Kai, which I think... It often winds me up when people say the Green New Deal is this or it's that because I don't really see it as something that's set in stone. And I read something of yours that I thought really captured this. Um, and it says that the Green New Deal is not a fixed policy agenda. The name is a placeholder, an empty signifier. It is here that movements and designers can converge on a question of central importance. How might we begin to organise Green New Deal landscapes differently? And I think that's a perfect way to end. Uh, Kai, you've been a fantastic guest, mate, and I, I hope we're going to speak again in the future. Oh, I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to both of you. So this is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers, and the conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout-out. Kai, who have you got for us this week, mate? Yeah, I'm going to do one shout out, which is for a group called Land in Our Names, which is otherwise known as Lion, which works for a kind of decolonial response to land politics in the UK. They're phenomenal. You can follow their work all over the place. And yeah, please support them if you can. Brilliant. We'll add them links as well so everybody can uh, can see what they do. That's brilliant. Thanks, Kai. Uh, Lucy, who have you got this week? All right. So my shout out this week is to our very own Andrew Glassford, who is now extremely old, having just turned 30. I think that's right, isn't it? And um, It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so, uh, by far the oldest of our group. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, if only. But um, yeah, so um, yeah, happy birthday to Andrew for all the work that he does for us, um, which is yeah, amazing. Mate. 100%. We love you. We appreciate you, mate. And my shout out this week is for another comrade. Um, it's a guy that I actually met during lockdown. When I say met, we met through the phone, through Zoom, and I've only physically met him once since we've been allowed to meet up in the last year and a bit. Um, his name is Sean Benstead. He's an absolute workaholic for the cause. 
Um, he's part of the great, Greater Manchester Labour for Green New Deal group that I'm part of. He's been an absolute godsend to me personally in the work I do. Um, we love you, Sean, mate. And I know we're going through it at the moment with this motion. He's put so many hours into that motion and we were appealing for it and we hope to God that it gets overturned. But if it doesn't, mate, listen, we really appreciate the work you've done for us. So, uh, yeah, Sean, we love you, mate. Okay, so thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we say it every week and we mean it. We love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you will join us again next time. Take care, everyone. We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guillermo Mund, and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash mcrgndpod.